The audio guide to the galaxy is recorded at SciTech on Wajak Noongar land. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to a special episode of the Audio Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast produced by SciTech. In this episode, we'll be taking a deep dive into the Murchison Widefield Array. My name is Leon, and I'm joined by uh, a man of great impressive titles, the Deputy Executive Director of the International Centre of Radio Astronomy Research, as well as the Director of the Murchison Widefield Array, Professor Stephen Tingay. Thank you for being here. Yeah, no worries. So we've got you on here today because there's big news in the world of radio astronomy recently, which is that the MWA is turning 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you able to tell us a little bit about that? I, I mean, I've even just started calling it the MWA, but what is the MWA? Yeah, the, the MWA is uh, a radio telescope based here in Western Australia in the Murchison region, which is uh, Wadri Yamaji country. Um, it's a precursor telescope for the much bigger future square kilometre array. Uh, probably many people have heard about that. That's a, a multi-billion euro uh, international project to build the world's biggest radio telescope here in, in WA. So the MWA plays a role as a, a precursor, both in terms of preparing our community to do the science with the SKA, uh, but also to develop the technology and understand how to operate large-scale telescopes in what is a pretty harsh environment out in the Murchison. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, there's a very broad answer there. And, and yeah, you've touched on it's a precursor to the SKA, which I'd love to come back to soon. And you said you're sort of preparing the community and the science organisation, uh, the scientific community to operate such a large uh, telescope like this. Is this unique in that sense? It is a little bit. Uh So the MWA is uh, an international project in itself. There are um, well and truly upwards of 20 uh, institutes and organisations, universities in uh, five different countries around the world working on the MWA. So Australia, Canada, China, Japan and the US. So they all have an interest in preparing for the SKA. Um, And so all of those member countries are sort of chipping in to develop and build and operate the MWA, so it has a, a pretty different vibe to most facilities that are generally built by a single jurisdiction and operated by a single organisation. Now I'm going to throw an interesting word at you, uh, Golgamanu. Can you tell me about that? Uh, well, that's the, the Wadri name for the MWA and um, the, the loose translation is ear that listens to the sky, um, which is really nice because uh the picture I have of the MWA is this, um, you know, as you said, spidery-like antennas distributed over the landscape, you know, shining in the sunlight, just sort of existing quietly on this ancient landscape that has been there for millennia, um, just quietly listening to what's going on in the universe. So it's mm. a it's a really, uh, really nice Wadri name. That is a, a really nice name. And what's the relationship between the... Uh the MWA operators and the observatory and the the Wadri Yamaji people? Yeah, it goes back a fair while now. Uh, The the MWA is basically the impetus uh, behind me and others working around Geraldton and around the Midwest. Uh, And back in 2009, which was the International Year of Astronomy, Mm. um, 
we had a, a project meeting in Geraldton and uh, the city council invited along some of the artists from Yamaji Art uh, and they brought along paintings of some of their sky stories. Oh, uh, wow. So we started talking about the Seven Sisters and the Emu in the Sky and, and, and other things and the discussion got really interesting really quickly and before we knew it we were travelling out on country together, sitting around the campfire, huh. staring at the sky and sharing our stories. Um, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, thinking about the some of the similarities between um, indigenous uh, views of the night sky and sort of uh, the Western or Greco-Roman mythologies, as well as the the astrophysical stories. Um, so that really took off. And over the last fourteen years, we've done multiple global exhibitions of art. We've done um, a movie uh, for the dome format called oh, Star Dreaming. Yes. Um, and we're just we're cooking up uh, new projects all the time. So it, it's been amazing to work with the guys from Yamaji Art and to spend some time on country with them and do some amazing things. Yeah, that's great that it's a, a continuous ongoing relationship. I yep. like it's not just a, a symbolic handshake at day one and then that's the end of it. Absolutely not, because um, we could not do what we're doing out in the Murchison without the permission and the goodwill of the traditional owners of that land. So um, it's really, really important for us to uh, deeply respect that. Um, and that it's actually natural and easy because we bond over our different views of the same sky. So we, we share that sky. Nobody owns it. We all have stories. Um, and yeah, it's, it's inspiring to me when we get together and talk through some of those things and it, it leads to other conversations as, as well and le- leads to a deeper understanding what a what a great uh, way of looking at it and i love that sentiment that uh, the shared sky that belongs to nobody mm. so yes it's a, it's a really great relationship i really like that and when we talk about this telescope so it's a radio telescope hence why we've got um we mentioned uh, ikra earlier there as well um radio telescopes Looking at photos of the MWA, it doesn't look anything like what you might expect a telescope. I'm thinking of the dish, as everyone does, yep. but this looks like a bunch of spiders. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's an accurate visual description. Um, pretty interestingly, the, the MWA is composed of antennas that just sit on the ground, mm-hmm. uh, sort of distributed across the lands- landscape. No moving parts. So the No moving parts. No moving parts. So the steering of the instrument is done completely electronically. Um I made a really nice little video that shows exactly that the MWA set of antennas is exactly equivalent to the dish, for example. So all of the physics of how a radio telescope works is the same, but um, many of the functions that are performed in a big dish mechanically um, and using uh, yeah, mechanical engineering are all done electronically with the MWA. Okay, and what's the choice for that? Why not just build a big dish? Yeah, well, there's a limit to how big you can build something for a sensible amount of money. Yeah, so nice. around about the, the biggest radio, single radio telescope you can build and not bankrupt yourself is around about 100 metres in diameter. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want more collecting area and therefore sensitivity and a bigger extent, which means better resolution, um, a really cool way to do that is to break up your antenna into little bits and scatter them around. Um, so you make more telescopes that are smaller, and that turns out to be much cheaper and much more flexible. Uh, and, and that's essentially, when you add it all back together, the equivalent of making just a single big telescope. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and you have the freedom to distribute things as you want and configure 
the telescope according to whatever your requirements are. So it introduces a lot of flexibility. Fantastic. And how many of these antenna does the MWA comprise of? Uh, currently, the, the MWA comprises of 8,192 individual antennas, um, and they're distributed over um, about 30 square kilometres. 30 square kilometres. Okay. Mm. Uh, oh, but I see they're not occupying the complete space. Um, how large is each individual antenna? The individual antennas are about uh, um, 50 centimetres um wide and 50 centimeters tall oh, so they're, yeah they're quite small they're, they're yeah they're very very manageable so um very easy to deploy very easy to um manufacture you, c- you can manufacture a lot of them very cheaply mm-hmm. um and therefore you can get um a really sensitive telescope by building lots of antennas at a, at a very reasonable cost much cheaper i see what you mean rather than trying to engineer a gigantic dish yeah um and I, so i suppose when because it's so vastly different most people would have little difficulty in imagining how most telescopes work, where you have the focusing of light and collecting that. But when you've got these antenna that look, yeah, look very much like spiders, physically, what happens? The the light wave arrives at an antenna, and then how is that then turned into a signal and information? Yeah. So as you say, people can visualise pretty easily what a dish is doing. It's the same as a you know, magnifying glass lens. Um, when the radio waves hit the surface of the dish. Um, they hit some of the surface uh, first, the outside bits, and they're reflected back to the focus. Um, and so the, the dish structure um, allows the introduction of delays between the different signals that are hitting the dish. It brings it all to a, a physical focus. Mm. Uh, the MWA does that purely etro- electronically. So when a radio wave sweeps across the array, uh, we can adjust the the time the signal then takes from each individual antenna and we can adjust that so that all of those signals add up um, to a focus in exactly the same way as a dish forms a focus. But instead of a a physical uh, delay introduced by the surface of the dish, we have an electronic delay. Right. So is my understanding if you've got just let's keep it simple two antennas and uh, a light wave comes from space it will, reach, it will reach one of the antennas a fraction of a second before the other one yep. and so you then build in an, an electronic delay into that first antenna yep. so that by the time you put all the signals together they are quote at the same time that that's exactly right so in radio astronomy we so call cool. we call that um well it's bringing into focus you're, you're focusing the instrument or you're making those signals coherent so they all add up together uh, coherent is that a very deliberate choice of words? Uh, yeah, so that refers to the coherence of the, the radio waves that are just waves. So if you think about waves, you want all the the peaks of the waves lining up, and you want all the troughs of the waves lining up. So oh, that I see, yep. that means that they're incoherence when you do that. Yeah, okay, that that makes sense. Yeah, gotcha. And what frequency does the MWA look at? Uh, yeah, it's a low, what we call low radio frequencies. So uh, the MWA operates between uh, about 80 megahertz and 300 megahertz. Um, so for context, the, the FM band that you listen to in your car mm-hmm. is between sort of 87 and 108 megahertz. So the MWA covers the FM band and a, a few other well-known bands as well. So you can pick up the radio station at the MWA? if I, Well... In it, theory... Well, uh, we, we can. Um, the choice of the, the Murchison is purposeful um, because a uh, very low population density, uh, it's quite remote and you want to be away from FM radio stations, you want to be away from cellular phones, 
You want to be away from uh, people, basically. Mm. Um, but we can, we can still spot her, uh, Geraldton transmitters just <laughs> over the horizon. So oh, wow. um, even even from the middle of the Murchison, you can pick up those signals with a very sensitive telescope. Wow, because yeah, I imagine the, yeah, sticking a radio tower out there is the equivalent of shining a torch into your eyeball while you're looking in a telescope. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly right. Um, and where does this frequency band compare to uh, like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth? Is that anywhere near MWA? Uh, no, they're they're typically um, significantly higher in frequency, sort of in the uh, around about the gigahertz, multiple multiple gigahertz oh, so range, like an order of magnitude. Yeah, orders of magnitude. Um, but that's fascinating that you're still collecting signals from um, from Geraldton. So are there just is there no radio uh, communication allowed within the Murchison area? Uh, well, there's on, on the site because it is quite remote. Um, there are situations where. Uh, mobile communications are allowed, and that's through just VHF radios, walkie-talkies, basically. Um, but if you take your phone out there, there is zero signal. Um, normal communications just aren't possible out there. Yeah, okay. Um, and yeah, we're, we're kind of just tossing around Murchison quite casually. Whereabouts roughly, if, you, if I'm going to drive to Murchison, how do you get there? Uh, yeah, to get there, we would uh, typically fly to Geraldton from Perth um, and then get some four-wheel drives and, and take the drive out. So it's about three and a half hour drive. Um, so we head out uh, past Mullawa to a uh, tiny little place called Pinda, and then you chuck a left and you leave the bitumen and you spend the next 250 kilometres on a on a dirt road. On a dirt road, yeah. Wow. And so we end up at uh, uh, Bulati Station, which is the site that uh, the telescopes are being built on. Yeah. Okay. I gotcha. Um, and that actually it was another question I had in mind. Yeah, we're out in this very remote uh, environment which is obviously exposed to the elements and all that sort of stuff. What sort of physical maintenance does the telescope require? MWA is pretty good, actually. Um, I mean, because the antennas are so simple, uh, they're made of aluminium that doesn't doesn't really oxidise. Um, the electronics attached to the antennas are pretty simple. And over, yeah, over the course of the last you know, 15 years, we've iterated the design so that um, they're very robust to the weather and the elements, um, temperature fluctuations, all those types of things. So what, what's actually out in the, the field is very, very simple. Where all the complexity and all of the, the cost um, comes is on the back end where you've got to deal with the enormous amount of data. All of the computers, all of the, you know, largely speaking, most of the electronics um, is inside a, a big central building that's obviously highly protected. Yeah, gotcha. Is that central building on site or are you talking about down here in Perth? Yeah, it's a central building out on the out on the site. And so all of the signals from the antennas end up in that building. That's where they're all combined. And uh, yep. Brought into focus uh, oh, I see. using yep. that technique that we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the first stage data processing occurs in that building and we use a, a large cluster of pretty powerful server computers that have the latest and greatest uh, GPU cards in them. And so, yeah, you do a little bit of basic uh, processing on site and then that data, I understand, comes down to Perth. Is there like hundreds of kilometres of fibre optics? Yeah, the processed data um, hit a dedicated fibre optic um, network that, goes, roughly speaking, the 800 kilometres down to Perth and all of those data uh, are ingested into the Pawsey Supercomputing Centre and so that's where our um, data archive sits and that's where we've accumulated over the last decade about 47 petabytes worth of data. 47 petabytes. A lot of data. That's So 47,000 terabytes. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so the yeah. laptop I'm using in front of me has about a terabyte. Yeah, it's um, the, the numbers don't mean a lot to, a, to many people but... Um, so I use analogies, mm. and my latest one is that um, if you started Netflix on HD streaming, 
<laughs> when Constantine the Great was the Roman Emperor in the year 300, you would have 47 petabytes by now. <laughs> so streaming Netflix for 17 centuries, basically. Yeah, all the way through the Middle Ages, Dark Ages, <laughs> yeah. Renaissance. Yeah, that's, that's a good analogy. I like that. It is that. a good analogy. Uh, and is there any upper limit? Uh, are we just going to hang on to all that data forever? or? Yeah, we're at the point where we actually have to manage that um, a bit. So over the years, we've accumulated more storage capacity at Pawsey. Um, but we are at the point after a decade where you know, not every single byte of that data set is useful. So we're going back and we're getting rid of some of the less useful stuff, some of the test observations, um, just so we can free up a, a bit more space for what comes next. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And you've mentioned that coming into sort of bringing it all to today where you've said the MWA is a precursor to the, the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, is that basically taking the ideas and lessons from MWA and scaling it up and making this magnificent, uh, all-powerful telescope? Yeah, that, that that's right. So the, the SKA is such a massive leap from the capabilities of telescopes that we had a generation ago. You, you need a stepping stone in between. Uh, so the MWA and other precursors around the world uh, play that role. Gotcha. Um, so it's it's a it's a chance to learn how to uh, how to use how to calibrate and make images from you know, as you described earlier pretty different type of telescope uh, and for the community to take the first really serious swing at some of this science. Um, so this is all preparation for the SKA. Right. And so are you able to quickly give us a rundown of the SKA for people who don't know what that is? Uh, yeah, well, the, the SKA, or Square Kilometre Array, is um, a big version of the MWA. <laughs> I think that's the best way of putting it. Qualitatively, it's um, a large number of uh, relatively simple antennas, no moving parts, uh, scattered out uh, around the landscape. But this time, it's like 131,000 antennas, <laughs> not 8,000. Right. And it's distributed over 1,000 square kilometres, not... 30. <laughs> right, so significantly so larger. Much more sensitive, um, potential for much more detailed images. Yeah. Yeah, and sensitive enough to potentially see into this EOR. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in your role itself, your day to day role, what's your involvement with um, that project or with the MWA? Uh, well, I'm the director of the MWA, so responsible for, for leading the team that uh, built and now operates the telescope. Uh, so that's been an um, enormous amount of fun over the last decade. And alongside that, me and my team have been deeply involved in uh, the SKA development. And in fact, uh, the MWA has hosted over the last decade uh, several generations of prototypes for the SKA antennas, um, testing the configuration, testing sensitivity, performance, understanding how those antennas survive in the environment. And so all of that work... Um, has been wrapped up and, and that's gone into the construction program now. So um, so we've done an, an enormous amount of design work for elements of the electronics. Um, we've done a huge amount of prototyping and testing of the, the different designs and all of that has fed into uh, the construction program and ultimately that is being um, expressed in a, a bunch of quite high-value contracts that are going to go to Australian industry. Wow. Um, so you sort of close the loop and um, there's a you know, economic as well as scientific benefit to these projects in that sense. Yeah, and that's interesting because that is always often a case of the 
for, for, for people who are in it for the science, you have no problem in um, dedicating time and effort to a project, but a lot of questions are always hanging over industry and economy and things like that. And so you're saying that, yeah, there's, there's a lot of money going into the Australian industry because of this massive scientific project. Yeah. Um, a couple of years ago, um, I did a, or I commissioned um, an economic and social impact assessment of the MWA project. And um, the, the people who did that assessment discovered that for every dollar that Australia has spent on the MWA, uh, more than $2 of GDP has been generated. Wow. So that's, you know, that, that people don't think of telescopes in that way. No, but, not but at all. But that's comparable to sort of bridges or all sorts of other bits of infrastructure that are more standard in people's thinking. Yeah, I can see what you mean. And that's, that's such an impressive number as well. Um, so basically you painted a really nice picture of the MWA as being both a stepping stone to SKA, something much larger, but also by itself an incredibly capable and um, versatile piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. So it really is um, a a fantastic piece of technology. I suppose we'll come back to the MWA. Um, I understand MWA is also quite good at just seeing large numbers of galaxies because it has just an extremely wide field of view. Is that right? Yeah, the the hints in the name, Murchison Wide Field Array, and and the wide field... um uh, the word wide field refers to the field of view of the telescope on the sky. Um, so if you, if you look at the MWA, you'll see that our antennas are grouped into groups of 16, what we call a tile. Yeah. And that is sort of the primary uh, antenna system. So that, that antenna has a field of view of you know, maybe a thousand square degrees. Uh, which is a lot compared to any other telescope in the world. Yeah, so for comparison, I remember the, the full moon is about half a square degree, I believe. Uh, it's, it's something of, it's yeah, it's like a quarter of a square degree or something like that. Yeah, um, so, so we're talking many times the size of the Yeah, the yeah, many, moon. many thousands of times uh, the full moon. So, uh, yeah, when you look out into the universe, you, you get everything that, that is in that field of view. So, you know thousands and thousands of galaxies and stars in our galaxy um yeah so it's a really it's a really efficient way to do that um, and how many people work uh with or at the mwa at the moment the core operations team is um astonishingly lean and mean <laughs> so the entire facility is operated by five or six people at Curtin university wow so they are the people actually paid to you know, operate the MWA keep it alive. Look after the look after the data. But the user community for the MWA is um, you know, in excess of 500 researchers from all of our member countries around the world. Mm-hmm. So once the data go into the Pawsey Centre, um, our users can uh, go to that portal, discover the data that they want, download it, um, and so they're the people who uh, process the data and write the papers. Um, so in that in that sense, it's in the in the hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after 18 months, all of our data become public. So anyone anywhere in the world can grab them and do something. And so there are probably you know, more hundreds of researchers around the world doing yeah, that. Everyone just getting getting their hands on the data. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it is interesting that you mentioned that such a small team of core operators, because I guess one of the things that most people don't realise is that modern astronomy is not done by sitting at the telescope and looking through it. Yeah. You, you know, these hundreds of users do they just put in a request for time and then the telescope automatically does it and then they just download their data? Yeah, twice twice per year we issue a, what's called a call for proposals um, and anyone can write a proposal uh, with a project idea. They get assessed by a panel. Um, they, they recommend the uh, ranking of those projects and then if you're high enough ranked, 
uh, then you, your proposal gets scheduled. So it goes into the queue, data are collected, uh, and away you go. And away you go. Do you yourself do much research these days? Uh, yes, I I do. Um, one of one of my key personal metrics is to try and produce at least one first author publication per year. <laughs> um, it's an admirable goal. It's an admirable goal, and I I tend to stick to it. Although I'm looking like I'm in a little bit of trouble this year, but yeah, my passion is astrophysics, and that's why I got into it uh, at a young age. So, you know, the day that I have to give that up is the day that you know. I'll stop doing it. Um, <laughs> That's very, yeah, hits it on the head, I think. But, but you know, my, my research is done between the hours of 10pm and 2am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair. Once, <laughs> once you've finished all your other work for the day. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And then my last main question really, sort of diving at the heart of anyone who loves astronomy, what's your take on the when you deal with millions of galaxies in a single data set and you're looking at this you know, tens of petabytes of data, how do you put yourself in the universe do you feel small do you feel large do you feel um overwhelmed what's your personal take on the whole thing it's a it's a good question um so i knew i wanted to be an astronomer at like age six (laughs) um because growing up in the country i would just sit outside at night wondering about what these stars were where they came from what does it mean so from a from a really early age i immersed myself in the universe really and what i do now as a professional astronomer um, there's really no different, actually. And whether it's like thousands of galaxies emitting radio waves in an image on my screen or sitting outside at night, I find it quite easy to immerse myself in it and sort of visualise what all of that means. I, I really like looking at the planets and the moon all together in the sky. And mm-hmm. you, you know that Venus is a certain distance and the moon is closer. And I, I find it really interesting to visualise that ge- geometry and take myself off surface of the the earth and visualize it from you know the point of view of the solar system um or the galaxy or the universe so i I don't know maybe i ingrained it into myself at a very early age but um it's pretty natural to me yeah right that's that's a really beautiful way of thinking about it yeah you're just enjoying the part of it that you're experiencing at the time and uh and it is what it is that's a that's a fantastic way to finish i think uh thank you so much for being here today uh professor tingay it's been an absolute pleasure no worries thanks leon that's it for this month's special episode of SciTech's Audio Guide to the Galaxy. We'll see you next month where we talk about the night sky in September. If you'd like to know more about what we've been talking about today, you can find more by going to the SciTech website and there you'll find a link for a page called The Sky Tonight, which is a monthly blog written by us here at SciTech about all the wonderful things you can see in the night sky. <laughs>